Well, it's a real privilege. It's a real privilege for us to be able to have communion together, to celebrate uh, Pentecost on our last day in this in this space. And um, I think those two things go together for us to think about today because Jesus wanted us to celebrate communion so that we recognize our union with him, our oneness with him, that we are one with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came to make that a reality, his presence in our lives. But the other really amazing thing is, and we celebrate this also, and that is our union with each other as a body. And that is something so special that we get to celebrate our union with Jesus and our union with each other as a body together today. So um, we're going to, our custom here is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're new here, you are welcome to this table. Uh, once the worship team starts leading us in worship again, you're welcome to come up uh, at any time to any of these three tables and, and take these elements. There's a gluten-free option there if you need that. And so I just want to um, read from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul's words about this celebration of communion. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the privilege of celebrating Jesus together in this time of communion. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our souls to your spirit and what you would do in our lives through this time. And Lord, if there's anything in our lives that is standing between us and you, give us the courage and the faith to talk to you about that and to receive the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again, and today is an amazing day in the church, isn't it? Um, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so you know that we are in a, Brian just started last week a series in the book of Luke, but I thought it would be appropriate to take today to really focus on Pentecost, on what happened. The early church was launched, really launched on this day. And you know, sometimes when we think about history, when we're reading history, we can read it in a way where we assume that the people involved knew what was going to happen. It's easy to do that because we know what happened. But the early church didn't know what was going to happen. There was a lot of anticipation, but they didn't know. And so I think that we as a body, Grace Church, you know, we're kind of in that place, aren't we? 
There's a lot going on, a lot of change, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But I think that that can be such a good thing. We're launching into a season of change with many unknowns. But there's one thing that is rock solid, and that is that we as a body want to be led by the Holy Spirit, and we want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is what we're doing. That is where we're going. And so what an opportunity for us to learn the posture of the early church. We can learn so much from them. And so that's what we're going to do today. So I've got two key passages. Really, we're just going to sort of be going through the narrative of Pentecost, which would be Acts 2, I'm sorry, Acts 1, 4 through 8, and then 2, 1 through 8. So we're going to turn to the scriptures now, but let me pray for us as, as we begin. Father, I want to recognize right at this moment that we stand in such desperate need of your Holy Spirit to open our minds to your truth. I can't do that, Lord. And so I ask that you would enable all of us to be taught and instructed by your Holy Spirit through your word and through this teaching today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I forgot my clicker. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> so, the first passage that we're going to look at, Acts 1, 4 through 8. This, this scene is taking place at the ascension. Jesus is getting ready to be taken on a cloud up into the sky, but once again, the disciples didn't know that. They didn't know this was going to happen. And so... Uh, they stood there gaping for a long time after it happened, but they didn't know beforehand. So Jesus is giving them last instructions here, very important. So gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So how interesting is it that Jesus' first command to his disciples was to wait? Not go and get busy and do this and do that, but to wait. And <clears throat> there's a, in the other ascension scene in Luke, there's a beautiful phrase that Jesus uses. He says, wait until you are clothed with power from on high. You know, throughout Scripture, waiting seems to be something that God thinks is pretty important. There's something about waiting that helps us collaborate with him, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. So he says, I want you to wait for what? Well, for what the Father promised, which he said you heard of from me. So Jesus had told them this was going to happen. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had told them. In fact, John the Baptist himself prophesied this before, at the very beginning, when he only knew someone was coming, and John said, the one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's in Matthew 3.11. So what happens? When they had come together, they were asking him, 
So they're asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Are the disciples getting it? Are they asking questions about the Holy Spirit? No. No, they're talking about politics. They're fixated on this idea that the Messiah has got to come politically and overthrow what's going on there in order for God's kingdom to come. How appropriate is that for our time? It's important for us to be a good citizen. It's important for us to engage in politics. It's important for us to do everything we can as a believer in a democracy. But you know what? The kingdom of Jesus Christ is supernatural. It is supernatural. It is not natural. It is not to come from programs. A miracle is required in my life, in your life, for the change that Jesus is going to enact. He's going to transform us. It's a miracle. That's what the church is about. And the disciples didn't understand. There's a revolution that Jesus is about to stir up, and the disciples didn't get it. And it's so nice. He gently corrects them. He says, no, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs. So he's pretty nice to them, as always. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So Jesus is saying, you've heard about this promise from me. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then he calls their attention back to the Holy Spirit and says, you're going to receive power. That's the promise. Power for what? Power to be witnesses. Being a witness for Jesus Christ, for you, for me, it requires divine power. It isn't something we can just do by persuasion or a great personality or clever speech. It is requiring divine power. So, this first passage we just read through, verses 4 through 8, I have two observations that I'd like to talk about from this particular passage. The first one, learning to wait. The disciples had to wait 10 days. What were they doing during those 10 days? Well, again, we can copy their posture. They were praying. They had a sense of expectation. It says they were constantly praying together. We Americans are terrible at waiting. I'm just going to come out and say, and, and I'm, at the lead of the, I'm at the front of the line of that problem. And, you know, it's a character flaw. And God has been dealing with it with me for a long time. And my wife knows. So, Salia is Peruvian. We have spent a lot of time in Lima, Peru. Lima, Peru is a city of 10 million people on a relatively small piece of real estate. So you're talking about a crowded situation where there's a lot of waiting. 
well, at one point, I was going to be there for an extended time, and so I had to get a Peruvian cell phone number and a chip for your phone. And so we went to this big mall and opened the door of the store, and my heart just sank. It looked like Black Friday. There was this line all the way to the back of the store, and I said, oh, isn't there any other way? She says, no, we got to wait. So we're waiting in line, and you know how it is when you're kind of complaining in your spirit, and you're looking for somebody else to kind of catch their eye and say, yeah, can you believe this? Well, you know what? I was the only person in that entire store that had the least problem with waiting. Everybody else was happy. And so I Lord, okay, this is really showing me something here. This is a problem for me. I need to work on this. So I'm working on it through the line, and you know, <clears throat> of course, I feel that I'm making progress. Uh, you know, by, as I'm getting toward the front of the line, I feel like I'm just another happy person waiting. Lord, you know, my list of character flaws, that waiting thing, I think we might be able to just draw a line through that. Not for long. We get to the front of the line, and instead of handing her my cell phone number and chip, they give her a piece of paper. I said, what's, what's that? Where's my thing? She says, well, this line is just to get a piece of paper that's permission to wait in that line over there. <laughs> I said, you have got to be kidding me. I'm standing in line for permission to stand in another line? Is this some diabolical plot to make me insane? So, you know, God is saying to me, hey, Jim, instead of you know, drawing a line to cross that out, I think I might use that line to underscore, you know, patience, uh, patience and waiting. Anyway, we're, we're terrible at that. And, you know, <clears throat> yet waiting on the Lord is something that is embedded in Scripture. If you read through the Psalms, 19 different times, David, or the psalmist, says, wait for the Lord. As the watchman waits for the morning, waiting on him is so important. Abraham, how, think about how long he had to wait for the promised child. He was 100 years old. It was to the point where it was ridiculous, the idea of having a child, but he held on in faith. Think about how long it took from the last prophet, Malachi, to the Messiah. Malachi prophesied about the Messiah. Jesus came guess what? Around 400 years of waiting. We haven't even been a country for close to that. 246 years we've been a country. They had to wait 400 years. So <clears throat> I have up here an image of a sailboat. And just to help us to think about what this kind of waiting is, it's not wasting time. Okay, I think that we're like sailors. Um, a sailboat is totally powered by the wind. There's nothing else that's going to move that boat. And when the wind isn't blowing, it's just sitting. But what are the sailors doing? They are preparing, aren't they? They're mending the sails. They're getting things ready. And most importantly, they have a sense of expectation about the wind. Hey, the wind is starting. And then there's this idea of cooperating with the wind and collaborating. And so this is the image of waiting on the Lord that we as a body need to carry into this new season. I think that we tend to think of ourselves not as a sailboat, but as rowers. You remember that scene from Ben-Hur, the old movie, <laughs> where he's in the bottom of this boat 
and there's this guy beating on a drum, and he's covered in sweat, and he's rowing to beat the band. Is that what we're doing? No. We're sailors, and our only power to move this ship forward is the wind of God. That's it. And that's the posture that we want to carry into this new season. The other thing from this passage I'd like to focus on is this word witness. You will receive power to be my witnesses. Well, it's very interesting that the Greek word for witness is martis. You know what English word is, comes from that? Our word martyr. Someone who dies as a witness for something. Someone who holds true their testimony unto death. Someone willing to lay down their life sacrificially. We think about witness in a very, very shallow way, I think. We tend to think, oh, hey, we just need to say these things a few words. No. The holistic meaning of witness, and I believe this is biblical, is that we lay down our lives. The power to be a witness is a divine capacity, it comes from God, a divine capacity to testify to the truth of Jesus through sacrificial love. That is the witness, is our sacrificial love. You know, as I think about examples of that in in our church, what immediately comes to mind is all of the wonderful families in our body that that have adopted children and that are foster parents. It's amazing. I have so much respect for these families. Someone that doesn't have a home, that doesn't have a family, and they say, hey, we want you. We want you as a part of us. And it's a lifetime commitment. It's not just for a day or a week or a season. It's a, it's a deep, abiding, lifetime commitment. It's, it's a sacrificial love. This is the character of New Testament witness. And you know, it's really beautiful. In Revelation chapter 1, one of the great titles for Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He laid down his life. He sacrificed himself. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the next passage. This is, the, the previous passage was the ascension passage. Now this is when things really start happening. This is when the exciting stuff starts going. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So the day of Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday. It is a, one of the pilgrimage feasts. There's three of them throughout the year. The first one is the Passover. This is the second one. It happens 50 days after Passover. So that's where the Pentecost, the Penta is 50. It's like the Pentagon, five-sided building. So this Pentecost day was the first day of the week. Just like the resurrection happened on the first day of the week, Pentecost happened 
on the first day of the week. How beautiful. And the Jewish feast was a feast of first fruits. People would take their early barley harvest and bring it to Jerusalem. They would travel miles and miles to come and bring this first fruit and honor God. So what happens? Well, suddenly there's this violent noise like a rushing wind. It doesn't say it was a wind. It says it was a noise like a wind that sounded really loud and apparently it was a public spectacle because it drew a crowd. In a busy city, something has to draw a crowd. Well, this noise apparently drew a crowd. And you know, it's interesting. When God himself appears in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, oftentimes there's a mighty noise of some kind that happens, right? You know, some of the people describe it differently, like the sound of rushing waters or the sound of a tumult. And so this noise happens and fills the whole house where they're sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving utterance. So this appearance of tongues of fire. Fire is another motif throughout the Old Testament of the presence of God himself. When God himself shows up, there's usually fire. Think about the burning bush for Moses. Think about Mount Sinai when the law was given to the Israelites and they were trembling because the mountain was covered with fire and smoke. Ezekiel's vision of God's great chariot throne, he said it was wind and storm and fire. So this is, once again, the point I'm making is this is the presence of God himself. And they began to speak with other tongues. <clears throat> the Spirit was giving them utterance. And this is so important that we recognize that the Spirit speaks through us. That he is able to speak through us, to use our personality, to use our gifts to speak through us. To say those things, to communicate those things that he has to say. Now in this case, he was speaking with other languages. But it still happens with us today. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So as I said, people travel from all over the world. They were devout people because you're not going to travel and risk your life and spend a bunch of money for something that you don't believe in. So they came to Jerusalem to honor God. They were devout. And then this sound occurred, and they were bewildered, and they heard speaking in their own language. So these are people that are speaking all sorts of different languages from their native, their native language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So there's this sense of confusion, puzzling stuff going on, and a little bit of shock, like how is it that these people are speaking in our language? These are unsophisticated Galileans. How are they speaking in the Egyptian language or, you know, whatever it is that they were born in? I'd like to make an observation about this moment 
when the crowd gathered around and the disciples came out and they were speaking in these other languages. This is really the first time that the church as a community got an identity, right? In other words, it wasn't just one person speaking. It wasn't just this guy over here. Everybody was impacted. Everybody was speaking in these different languages, and it was quite a scene. And in the book of Acts, this new community that was sort of born on this day, the church, began to be recognized more and more and more as a community. And this is what I want to draw out for us as we go forward. This is a slide that shows the new property that we're going to be building on, moving to. Shows a substantial community that's going to be built around that. You already know that the middle school is right adjacent to the new property. And I want to make an observation for us to think about. And it has to do with the power of a collective witness as a community. You know, um, it's very, very easy to think of witnessing as something that is a one-on-one activity. And it can be, certainly. But it's much, much more than that. And the most powerful witness that we have is as a community. The way that we relate to each other, the way that we show hospitality, the way that we show service and kindness, the way that we sacrifice for one another and for others. This is what the early church did. And it says in Acts 2.47 that they had favor with all the people. Why? Because they were doing things to serve and to help people. Healing. Kindness. And so I want to point out that as we move forward, what an exciting vision for us as a church that we can be a team. That we can have a witness as a community. Well, what does that look like? Well, I think the gift of hospitality is really, really crucial for a community witness. Because hospitality opens the door for people to come in. It recognizes them. It makes them feel comfortable. That that gift is marvelous. Well, how does that lead to anything? Well, hospitality leads to conversations, leads to relationships, which can lead to prayer for people which can lead to faith. You know, just a, just a quick story to illustrate this. <clears throat> uh, my older brother, Doug, was part of a church plant, a small gathering up in Rhode Island, and they had occupied this sort of abandoned school building in the city. It was not the best area. 
And so as they're going into worship and everything, just a small group, you know, 30, 40 people, he notices that there's this line next door. What is that? What are all these people lining up for? Well, it's a, it was a methadone clinic. It was people who uh, are addicted to heroin, and methadone is, is part of a treatment to get them to step down. And then, so they, they, they go to get these treatments, these methadone, uh, on a weekly basis. So Sunday morning, there's a line of addicts waiting for methadone, and the church is going in next door. So he says, okay, how, what are we going to do? How do we do something with these people that are standing, up, standing out here? So the next week, he and his wife get up early. They go to Dunkin' Donuts. They get two of these big things of coffee, and they get a simple folding table from the church. Doug, you know, in his typical style, just scrawls out free coffee on a piece of paper, sticks it on the table, and they sit there drinking coffee. Well, don't you know that these people saw that? Hey, and they start wandering over. Is this free coffee? Yeah, it's free coffee. Have some. And Doug said, you know, it's amazing, but when a person has a cup of coffee in their hand, they want to talk. They feel comfortable. They feel like they belong a little bit. It's just this weird thing that happens with a cup of coffee in your hand. And so this is what happened. So week after week, the people are beginning to expect this. They come over. They had to start getting more coffee. They had to start getting stuff from Panera Bread, some Danish and whatnot. Anyway, the bottom line was that they began to build relationships. And then what happens? They begin to hear about the terrible problems in people's lives. Oh, you know what, I'm, I, I might lose my custody of my children. Or, oh, you know what, I've got a court date next week. Or, oh, you know what, I've got this, I've got this health complication. And so Doug and Sharon and the team that they had, they said, well, hey, can, can we pray for you? Can we pray for you? Because that's what we do. You know, we're over here, and we love to pray for people. And so they place their hands on them if they get permission to do so, and they pray for them. And you know the people said, hey, uh, can, can we come? Like, can we start coming to this after we're done with our treatment? Yeah, of course, you can come and sit, sit with us, you know? And so a number, of pe- a number of people from that group came to faith and were baptized. And there wasn't any big push. They just came, and they became part of the community. They began to to mix in with people. They started to ask questions like, hey, what's this stuff about Jesus? I don't really understand this. And so the church just did the things they always did, but people asked questions. Anyway, I'm saying there's an opportunity for us as a team in this location, in this space, in this neighborhood to work together in a powerful way for us to be the witnesses for Jesus that will bring people to faith. It's very, very exciting. And so these three things that I've talked about today, learning to wait, right? Cultivating that expectancy on the Holy Spirit, not rowing. Let's try to be sailors. And then the concept of witness, which is not just giving out a tract. There's nothing wrong with giving out tracts, believe me, but it's so much more to give sacrificial love to people that's going to get someone's attention. And then finally, the idea of a team, that we are a team, that we're a collective witness, that we do this thing together, and all the different gifts work together, hospitality, conversation, 
Some people know how to lead people to faith very, very well. There's all sorts of gifts here that all work together and come into play. That's the church. That's where we're going. And I think we can be very excited about what the Holy Spirit is going to do going forward. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this incredible body. Your people gathered here, Lord, the gifts, the talents, the dedication, the sacrificial love that is just everywhere that you look in this body. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use us in a mighty way going forward, that we would have anticipation and excitement, and that you would accomplish your purposes through Grace Church. That's all that we want, Lord, is to be led by your Spirit, accomplish your purposes, and give you the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.